0: Thank you, Sarah. Good morning, everyone. Uh, please turn with me to Second Kings 16. Uh, and as you do that, we're going to kind of dive straight into this. But as you look up Second Kings 16, let me show you a quote that we are uh, going to come back to later. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Kind of a kind of striking thought. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. And it's, it's, it's a quote that kind of prompts the question, and it is from God's Word, but it's a quote that prompts the question, well, am I? And, and are you? Are we standing firm in our faith today or not? Or let me put it like this do you trust God? Do you trust God in your circumstances, with your circumstances? Whatever the problem, whatever the situation, whatever the issue, does your faith determine your response, your reaction, and your reply? Do you trust God? Because if not, you could be heading for a fall. Let me, let me show you another quote. This one maybe seems to come a wee bit from left field. Faith is always a third option in the real world. Faith is always a third option in the real world. We're going to come back to both of those shortly. So 2 Kings 16. Now some of you are thinking, don't know how many, but some of you are thinking, what happened 14 and 15? Because last week, we stopped at the end of chapter 13, not long after Elisha's bones gave life back to the dead body of an unnamed man. And and by the way, and this is a slight tangent, I know, but by the way, after the service last Sunday, somebody asked me about the whole subject of relics. Thanks. Thanks. a subject that is often kind of associated with and raised by the likes of Alicia's Bones, or Elisha's Bones, whatever way you say that name, and some of you are getting fed up with the way I say it, but that's okay. Uh, in chapter Well, a relic, let me give you the definition of a relic. A relic is an object from the past, especially one that has no modern use, but is of some value for its meaning and its importance in history. That's one definition of a relic. Here's another definition. A relic is a part of the body or clothing of a saint or a holy person, or it's something that belonged to a saint. And down through the years, and it's still the case today, in certain cultures and in certain contexts, relics have been seen as incredibly important, even magical and powerful. And so Elisha's bones appear to have magically raised a corpse back to life whenever it came into contact with them. But here's what I want to say. Ultimately, in that situation, it was Elisha's God who brings life out of death. And that is the critical point. So relics of the past are a reality. They do exist. But they must never distract us from or take the place of the true source of life and death, the God of the past, present, and future. Okay, back to Second Kings 16. Now, in chapters 14 and 15, which we are skipping, preacher's prerogative and all that, we read about the comings and goings of nine different kings. So if you read chapters fourteen and fifteen, you'll read about nine different kings, six in the north in Israel three in the south in Judah. And then if you look at the very last sentence, if you have a Bible open in front of you or on a device, look at the very last sentence of chapter 15 where we're introduced to the new king of Judah who is called Ahaz. And then 2 Kings 16 is an entire chapter devoted to just that one king. And so we're going to go with him we're going to track him this morning, not because the other nine kings of 14 and 15 don't matter, but if we're ever going to get through this series, <laughs> if we're ever going to get through this series, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to need the this. So here we go. Here, by the way, is a list of the six kings in the north in chapters 14 and 15 and for how long they reigned. So you have Jeroboam who reigned for 41 years in Israel. Zechariah reigned for six months. Shalom only reigned for a month. Menahem for 10 years, Pekahiah for 2 years, and then Pekah for 20 years. Now, all of them, and this is the really important bit, all of them, bar one, and that was Shalom, but he only lasted for 4 weeks before he was assassinated by Manahem. all of them, quote, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now, contrast that with the three kings of Judah that we read about in chapters 14 and 15. Here are the three kings of Judah during this time. Amaziah, who reigned for 29 years, Azariah, who reigned for 52 years, and Jotham, who reigned for 16 years. Now, each of them, and here's the contrast, each of them did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, okay? So you've got this picture that Israel in the north, is sliding further and further down a slippery slope and heading for an abyss. As leader after leader, as king after king, dismisses God and does their own thing. But in Judah, in the south, there's still hope. There's still some hope. And so with a sense of anticipation, let's now read about the next king in Judah. And let's see if he can maintain the momentum. So if you can, please stand for the public reading of God's word. And I do have all the text on screen this morning. So here it goes. In the 17th year of Pekah, son of Remaliah, so he was in the north, Ah Ahaz, son of Jotham, king of Judah in the south, he begins his reign. Ahaz was 20 when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 16 years. Unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He followed the ways of the kings of Israel, and he even sacrificed his son in the fire, engaging in the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He offered sacrifices and he burned incense at the high places and on the hilltops and under every spreading tree. Then Rezin, king of Aram or king of Syria, same place, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, they marched up to fight against Jerusalem and besieged Ahaz, but they could not overpower him. At that time, Rezin, king of Syria, recovered Elath for Aram by driving out the people of Judah. Edomites then moved into Elath, Elath sorry, and have lived there to this day. Verse seven: Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. I am your servant and vassal, or I am your servant and your son. Come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Aram and the king of Israel who are attacking me. And Ahaz took the silver and the gold that he found in the temple of the Lord and in the treasuries of the royal palace. And he sent them as a gift, or also you can read, sent them as a bribe to the king of Assyria. The king of Assyria complied by attacking Damascus, which is the capital of Syria, and capturing it. And he deported its inhabitants to Kerr and he put resin to death. Then King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet tiglath pileser king of Assyria. And he saw an altar in Damascus, and he sent to Uriah the priest a sketch of the altar with detailed plans for its construction. So Uriah the priest built an altar in accordance with all the plans that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. And he finished it before King Ahaz returned. Well, when the king came back from Damascus and saw the altar, he approached it and he presented offerings on it. Let's go down to verse 15. King Ahaz then gave the orders to Uriah the priest on the large new altar, offer the morning burnt offering and the grain offering, the king's burnt offering and his grain offering and the burnt offering of all the people of their land and their grain offering and their drink offering. Splash against this altar, the blood of all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. But I will use the bronze altar, that is the one he set aside, for seeking guidance. And Uriah the priest did just as King Ahaz had ordered, 17. King Ahaz cut off the sides of the panels. He removed the basins from the movable stands. He removed the sea from the bronze bulls that supported it, and he set it on a stone base. He took away the Sabbath canopy that had been built at the temple, and he removed the royal entrance outside the temple of the Lord in deference to the king of Assyria. As for the other events in the reign of Ahaz and what he did, are they not written in the annals of the king of Judah? Ahaz rested with his ancestors and was buried with them in the city of David and Hezekiah, his son, succeeded him as king. Okay, please take your seat. Now, can I talk about shattered hopes and profound disappointment because here we discover that unlike David, his father not his direct father, but his related, uh, David, who was related to him. Unlike David, his father, Ahaz did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. his God. this is the only king of Judah who is introduced like this. All the kings of Israel, most of them are introduced like this. This is the only king of Judah introduced in these terms. And it gets worse. Because it says he opted to make Israel's kings his role models. So it says he followed the ways, not of the kings of Judah who who he followed on from, but he followed the ways of the kings of Israel. But it gets even more tragic and even more alarming because we also read that he engaged in the practices of the nations that God had driven out of the land, which included child sacrifice. I mean, this king torched his own son what it says. So Ahaz, this new king in Judah, has totally rejected God and rejected God ways, God's ways, and he has opted for compromise and conformity. But I wonder, did you notice the two words that come after the eyes of the Lord sentence? The two words are this, and I've underlined them there, his God. Again, You do not find this with any of the others. And so in a sense, the tragedy is even more striking because what this is telling us is that the Lord was Ahaz's God. But that didn't matter. And it certainly didn't affect his life and leadership choices and decisions. And so what you've got here is a marked shift in the southern kingdom in terms of its leaders. Dark Clouds or darker clouds are starting to gather over Judah as well. They've been gathering over Israel for some time, but now they're starting to gather over Judah as well. You see, way back in Leviticus 18, Moses warned that if the people of God got involved in the detestable practices of the people that once lived in the promised land, then that land would one day vomit them out. Well, given what you read about Ahaz, it sounds like we've reached that point or we're dangerously close to the point, could it be—this is a shocking thought—could it be that the people of God are soon going to be spewed out of their promised land? Is that honestly a possibility? That land that was promised to them, that land that they journeyed towards, that they longed for, that God had prepared for them— could it be we've now reached the point where that land is going to vomit them out because of the choices they've been making? See, choices and consequences. If you don't stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Ahaz is flat in his face, and so are all those who he's been leading. And it begs a question, two two questions. What are you and I doing and who are we following? What are you and I doing and who are we following? Are we doing what's right? Are we doing what is right in the eyes of the Lord? And who are our role models? Well, the story continues because it says that, that Ahaz has a problem and it's a major problem the king of Syria and the king of Israel. And again, please don't miss this. The king of Syria or Aram, same place, and the king of Israel have joined forces and have come to attack Jerusalem, the capital of Judah. Why is the king of Israel in partnership with the king of Syria? Well, it's clear, as I said, those dark clouds are getting darker and darker over Israel. So the question is, who will Ahaz turn to? Where will he turn? And verse 7 tells us exactly where he turns. King Ahaz sent messengers to King tiglath pileser of Assyria with this message, I'm your servant and I'm your son. The build-up, of tragic sentences just continues to increase. I mean, to say that Ahaz has totally abandoned God now is an understatement. Here he takes a formula. Here he takes a formula of submission and surrender that is meant to be directed to God. Kings were meant to say, God, I am your servant. I am your son. But here is a king turning round and offering his devotion to to an entirely different kind of king. The king of Assyria, of all people. He is now at a point where he's placing his trust and his faith in someone else. Now, you could argue, well, that's no big surprise given everything we've read about this guy so far. I mean, he's gone so far, hasn't he? Plus, The other thing is, there's no longer a voice of reason about anymore. There's no Elisha type character around now. Elijah's gone, Elisha's gone. There's no word of God to speak into this king's life. There's no word of God to help him to see sense, to call him back, to challenge his choices. But you see, if you read 2 Kings 16 and just assumed that, you'd be wrong. Now, we don't often do this but we're actually going to go somewhere else in Scripture to understand what is actually happening here because there is a voice of reason. There is the Word of God speaking into this king's life. And so if you have a Bible, turn to Isaiah chapter 7 because here we discover that Isaiah, now we're talking major league prophet now, but Isaiah meets this king at this point of his life and speaks into it. Look at verse 1, and I don't have it on the screen, but look at verse 1, and I'll read it for you, of Isaiah 7. It says this, When Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, so it's now, King Rezin of Syria, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up the fight against Jerusalem. So, Isaiah 7, verse 1, exactly same time frame as Second Kings 16. Then, The Lord said this to Isaiah. This is verse 3. Go out, you and your son Shear-Jashub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field. So Ahaz is being, uh, or Isaiah is being sent to Ahaz with a message. And here's the start of the message. Be careful keep calm, and don't be afraid. Now, here we're back into the realms of grace. Like, Ahaz has long ago abandoned God, but God has not abandoned Ahaz. He is still speaking words of help and hope and comfort into his twisted and messed up life. Yes, the threat from those two kings, the king of Syria and the king of Israel, they're very real. But God says to him, Ahaz, don't be afraid. It's incredible. Incredible words of grace and mercy into the life of someone who has made horrendous choices to just ignore and abandon God. But God doesn't abandon and ignore him. And then verse 7 says this. This is what Isaiah says from God. It will not take place. It will not happen. For the head of Aram or the head of Syria is Damascus. That's the capital. And the head of Damascus is only Rezin. And within 65 years Ephraim, which is Israel, will be too shattered to be a people. The people of Ephraim in Samaria and the head of Samaria is only Remaliah's son. Then get this next bit. If you do not stand firm in your faith, Ahaz, you will not stand at all. And so God speaks into this king's life via the prophet Ahaz. And, and he presents him with a startling and a straightforward comment and warning. He says, just if you do not stand firm in your faith, Ahaz, you're not going to stand at all. And so what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Where are you going to turn? Who are you going to trust? You see, faith is about trusting in the promises and the presence of God in our lives. That's what the faith that is being spoken about here is all about. Faith is about trusting in the promises and the presence of God in our lives. And God has just spoken into the life of Ahaz. And the question is, is Ahaz going to listen? Is Ahaz going to trust God, his God? Well, it seems that Ahaz only saw two options. Either I surrender to these two kings, the king of Israel and the king of Syria, or I turn round and I submit to another king, the king of Assyria. It's either, it's or, and he chose or. He refuses to think of a third option. He refuses to trust God. He clearly decides to ignore God's word to him. He clearly decides to ignore the faith option, the trust option. And so he turns to Tiglath, Pilazar, and he says, I'm your servant. And I'm your son. And so I've heard the word of God via the prophet Isaiah, but I'm not going to trust him. And so he doesn't accept that faith is always a third option in the real world, and it still is. So let me go back to where I started with this question. Do you trust God in your current circumstances? What are you dealing with at the moment? what problem are you facing? What tension are you experiencing relationally, emotionally, mentally, physically? Does your faith determine your response and your reaction and your reply? Do you trust God in your current circumstances? You know, two of the most often quoted verses in the Bible say this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him and he will make your path straight. That is faith. That's faith. Trusting in God in all your ways. I'm going to trust God in this situation. There's all kinds of options before me. But faith is always a third option in the real world. I'm going to trust God. Psalm 62, and this is an echo of many psalms, we are urged to trust in the Lord at all times. Let me read these things. Trust the Lord at all times. That means with every single thing we are facing and dealing with. Pour out your hearts to him, says the psalmist, because God is your refuge. And so Ahaz did have options. Stand firm in his faith was one of them. Trust God was one of them. Trust in the promises and the presence of God was a third option. Or else, do something else. Turn somewhere else. Go somewhere else. And he chose to go somewhere else. And as a result, he continued in free fall. Because if you do not stand firm in your faith, if you do not trust God in each and every circumstance, you could find yourself flat in your face. So as you and I face daily choices, lots of either or moments, lots of challenges to do this or do that or go here or go there, let me encourage and urge you to stand firm. Submit to God. Say to God, not anything. Say God, God, I am your servant. I am your son. I am choosing to trust. Because faith is always a third option in the real world. Go well, back to the story, Second Kings 16. So it turns out Ahaz has decided, I'm going to turn to Assyria for help. I'm going to turn to the king of Assyria to save me. I'm going to turn to someone else and somewhere else to rely upon. And as I said earlier, as I read through verse, the verses, uh, verse 8 says that Ahaz actually sent Tiglath-Pileser a gift, or it's a bribe is what it really means, to guarantee his assistance. Dale Ralph Davis, in his commentary on Second Kings 16 says, I love this, but he suggests some alternative lyrics of a well-known Christian hymn. Some of you can start singing this as we do this together, okay? But here is some alternative lyrics to a Christian hymn that Ahaz could have sung at this point. My Tiglath, I bribe thee, you know I am your man. For thee, Yahweh's promises, I veer view as mere sand. Your mighty oppressor, my Savior art thou. If ever I need thee, dear Tiglath, tis now. And some of you are singing that over there. You can do it. It works. It works really well. It's slightly amusing if it wasn't so tragic. Because this is exactly where this guy's reached. And it says the king of Assyria helps him. And so he attacks, Tiglath-Pileser attacks Damascus, the capital of Syria. And he kills the king of Syria. One of the two of Ahaz's main opponents. And then it says Ahaz has heads for Damascus because he wants to go and meet and greet his new hero, his savior, his latest role model. And it says when he arrives in Damascus, one of the first things he does is he spots an altar. And he likes the look of it. And so he, takes, or he starts getting sketches drawn up of it and he sends the sketches to Uriah who is the priest. Back in Jerusalem. And he sends instructions with these sketches to Uriah to build an altar just like this Syrian altar or a Syrian altar. And commentators are not entirely sure as to whether it's Syrian or whether it's a Syrian at on one level. It doesn't really matter. The point is it's an alternative altar in, which to, in a place to, in which to worship God. But he sends sketches of it back to Uriah. And Uriah the, the priest, not sure he's the high priest, but he's a priest. And for some reason, he just replicates this Assyrian or Syrian altar without any question. And it's such a strange incident. And so whenever Ahaz returns from Damascus and this new altar has been built, and the old altar, the bronze altar, as you read from the text, has been pushed to one side, and this new altar has been given a prominent place in the temple area. And whenever Ahaz returns, he further rearranges the furniture it's a strange incident, as I say, and lots of people have lots of different takes on, but let me make just a couple of comments on what seems to be going on here. And the first is this, that whenever you abandon true worship, you don't abandon all worship. Whenever you abandon true worship, you do not abandon all worship because we were created to worship. It's wired into us. And therefore, whenever God is not your focus, something or someone else will become that. Something or someone else will solicit your devotion and your adoration and your service and your attention and your time. If it's not God who you were created to worship, it'll be something else. Ahaz still worshiped, but God was no longer at the heart and center of it. The second comment is this, and it follows. He did all of this. He did all of this to please others. Look at the end of verse 18. We're at the close of this section that describes further changes that A has made to the temple structure. He effectively vandalizes, he cuts things off, various pieces of temple furniture. He removes certain items. Well, at the very end of that, we read this sentence, this explanation. He did it all in deference to the king of Assyria, which means he did it all in polite submission and respect to the king of Assyria. You see, Ahaz's revamped worship is all for an audience of one. It's all for an audience of one, but it's the wrong one. It was not to please God. It was not to glorify God. It was not in obedience to God. It was all to please and esteem an alternative king. All our worship should be for an audience of one. You see, the moment that Ahaz said to tiglath Pileser, I am your servant and I am your son, that is the moment that he traded his heart and he traded his worship. At that moment, the homage that belonged to God was exchanged and redirected. Ahaz traded sovereigns. And the Bible is clear. Jesus was clear. Worship the Lord your God only. Worship and serve the Lord your God only. Ahaz was miles away from that place. Through deadly disobedience, yes but also via trust and commitment in another God in his life. And so he had totally lost his way. And so if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. And that was God's word to this king. And by the end of his reign, he's facedown. In in 1 Corinthians, Paul, at one point, refers back to, to lots of past events in the history of Israel. And he says this. Now these things happen to them as examples for you. These things happen to them as examples and they were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So the one who thinks he is standing firm, you need to be really careful lest you fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And you know it's tempting to compromise your worship. It's tempting to do your own thing. It's tempting to live to please others. It's tempting to place your trust in other things, in other directions, in other options. Of course it is. But based on the story of Ahaz, the written record of his disastrous stint as the king of Judah, take the warning of his downward spiral to heart and on board so that you stand firm in your faith and do not fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And every single day we are tempted to compromise our worship. Every single day we are tempted to trust, place our trust elsewhere. Place our faith elsewhere, day in and day out. 2 Kings 16 is a sad and sorry tale, but it's been gifted to us. It's been gifted to us as a sobering reminder of what can happen. And tonight, if you happen to come back tonight, we reach a place in Hebrews. We come to one of the five warning passages of Hebrews about the possibility of apostasy, of renouncing your faith, of abandoning what you believe. And here, in 2 Kings 16, is someone who did not do what was right in the eyes of his God, who dealt with him in grace, who spoke his word into his life and said to him, listen, if you don't stand firm in your faith, you're going to fall. And he chooses, well, actually, I'm someone else's servant. I'm someone else's son. And the chapter ends with the usual reference to the book of the Isles where all the other uh, events of this king's life are recorded. But then we read this final line. And Hezekiah, Ahaz's son, succeeded him as king. And without giving too much away, there is some hope in that last sentence. And we'll discover why in a couple of weeks. You see, there is always hope where God's involved. And so what's the takeaway from this morning? Well, here's the takeaway, the story. That's the takeaway from this morning, plus these two quotes. And so I just close by asking you, are you standing firm in your faith this morning? Are you trusting God today, right now, in the situation that you're in? In the situation that you're in, are you trusting God? Faith is always an option.